Good morning and welcome. This episode is about to get started. But before that, a few things you should know. First of all, this show is brought to you for free. To support, please consider sharing the episode with your friend, leaving a great review or signing up for my bi-monthly top five email. What is it? It's a free email that I craft twice a month and send out to thousands of you where I share what inspired me recently, books and film that had an impact on me, but also gear and tips and things I've been thinking about lately that really impacted me in a way. If you too want to join in on the fun, please visit ptl.fm forward slash top five, T-O-P five, and you will be in for the next edition. Now, last but not least, all podcast show notes are available at ptl.fm forward slash podcast. Thank you so much for being here and let's get started. Good morning, podcast, and welcome to a new special episode on the Pierre Tillambert Show. I am your host, and today I've got an incredible guest, and we're going to dive into a topic that I have never explored before, and I thought to dip the toes, we're going to bring someone, and that person today is Laura Dawn. Laura is the host of the Psychedelic Leadership Podcast, a microdosing mentor for executive and top performers, and has been leading transformational retreats for over 10 years. Laura has a degree in finance and entrepreneurship and over two decades of exploring altered states of consciousness. Currently, she's completing a master in science specializing in creativity and change leadership, exploring the intersection between psychedelics and creative problem solving, helping leaders and teams unlock innovative solutions to the complex challenges we collect. I'm going to get that. We collectively face. All right, Laura D, <laughs> thank you so much for making it through this introduction. Welcome to the podcast. I'm so excited to have you here today. Mm, thank you, Pierre. So happy to be here with you. Laura, I'm very intrigued, excited, curious. What is happening? What are we talking about? How is this going to work? The whole world is seeing obviously a shift in the narrative around psychedelics and their usage. And I felt that instead of leaving it up to people to randomly find by themselves through people that may have heard of it or not, I thought, why don't we bring an expert in that field, i.e. you, to actually get us a little bit of insight into this ecosystem and how it can be used or not used for creativity and how it can work. So... This is kind of the overview for anyone watching. And obviously, Laura, D, we're going to dive into your story also. I'm, I'm kind of very curious to see how you got into that space that is very different from what everyone else might think at first note. So, Laura, again, thank you. Welcome. And can I ask you, can we just start somewhere that you and I were discussing yesterday before we started recording? What happened when you were a kid, when it came to creativity and drawing with your teachers, if I'm remembering correctly? Yeah, yeah. It's so funny because I just think it's so ironic that I'm now completing my master's in creativity studies because I think just like many other people have had this experience where when I was, I think it was in grade two and I had this teacher, she used to say, my name is Miss Johnston with a T. And she was this like kind of old crotchety woman. And she came over and to my desk and said that I would never be creative because I couldn't draw like the girl sitting next to me. And I so desperately wanted to be good at drawing. And after that day, that was kind of a traumatic experience, you know, that got etched into my memory that shaped me and my belief system about what creativity is. 
moving forward, even still to this day, even though I study creativity, I've actually had a really big narrative shift around what creativity really is. But I actually still am working through those internal blocks around drawing and putting pen to paper. It's actually just been a really amazing process to to witness my healing and grow through that process. But I think a lot of people have had experiences like this. And when I share this with other people, I often hear other people express to me, oh, my God, I had a similar experience happen. And I don't know, Pierre, do you know who Brene Brown is? Do you know the research of Brene Brown? Yes, Brene Brown loves to talk about vulnerability. Yeah, so she is an incredible researcher and she's collected over 400,000 pieces of data from people. And she found that about 80% of people have had some kind of experience in elementary school that sort of planted a negative belief that then negatively impacted them into adulthood. And of the 80%, about 50% of the 80%, it was related to creativity. And I just found that so interesting. And it actually parallels the other research that only about a quarter of people believe that they are creative or a third of people It's really interesting times, especially to be talking about psychedelics and creativity, because I see them as both going sort of through this like destigmatization. They're both going through like a cultural rebrand right now. So it's kind of (laughs) interesting. That's true. That's it's completely that it's it's how you perceive suddenly you you're called Facebook the next day. It's meta and whether you want it or not, it does change your perception of it. Okay, so elementary school, how old are you? Because I'm not super familiar with the school systems. Like, how old were you? And kind of a weird question is, do you remember as a kid what it did or like how you processed it or how you thought about it? I have troubles remembering my child stuff sometimes, but first, how old were you? And do you remember how that that worked for you? Yeah, I gosh, I was probably like eight or nine years old-ish, maybe 10 in that very young age. And then, you know, in grade three, up until about six, I was in school with this girl named Jenica Lounsbury. I'll never forget it, you know. And she was just this incredible drawer. And for the rest of my time, I used to be so afraid of giving it a go and drawing because it was in this like comparative mentality and this comparative mindset. And it's so funny now that I'm studying, you know, re- creativity research, it, it, it just so much of my own personal experience mirrors that because we see that people who have fixed beliefs about their capacity in whatever creativity domain we're talking about, then don't go and embody those actions and those behaviors with a belief. We can dive in more into this, but essentially I didn't try to draw or try to be creative in, in the ways that I don't want to equate drawing and artistic expression with creativity. And I think that's actually a big part of like the narrative shifts that's going on for us collectively right now. But I was so afraid to just see what would face me like face back from the page. And there was a lot of self-judgment and shame around that. So I would say like in that area, it really just prevented me from exploring and playing in that particular creative area. I I love what you're saying, because I think so many of us can relate. There's always a point where either a teacher or a friend, a parent is like, no, I think you suck at that. And just that thought that, oh, I'm not good at this, which means nothing. You might have just tried for the first time. Who the heck knows? Really impacts us. And through me, through photography, a lot of people that I meet tell me, you're creative, you have this. And I don't consider myself really like creative in that sense either. 
It's just like I'm having fun. I'm trying things. And I feel like for me, at least creativity is almost like a muscle. If you don't train, just letting go of what is supposed to be when you're doing something and just trying, it helps a lot. It always like shocks me the impact of those early teachers on our lives. <laughs> and when you realize you're like, oh, maybe I should pay more attention to what they, they do if I have kids one day. Oh my gosh, especially those first seven years of our lives, we're just like sponges. And that is actually the kind of imprinting that happens and what our beliefs are really end up becoming who we embody in our lives. There's so much we could actually talk about in just that category. But for me, it's actually been this whole process of redefining the narrative because the narratives and the stories that we tell ourselves influence the actions that we take and the paths that we choose for ourselves. And it was really psychedelics actually that helped me rewrite some very deeply ingrained narratives and help me forge my own path forward, which I think is really what we're all being called to do right now. That's a very important point to dive into. How does one even go about, I will say that before you can even try to work on something, how do you even bring awareness to it? That's such a good question. Okay, I'm going to give an analogy. I use this analogy in a lot of the programs that I teach. It's almost like we're in our adult lives. It's like we're living in a glass room. We can see off into the distance because it's glass and we might think to ourselves like, oh, I want that thing over there. I want to align with that. I want to go for that. But then we walk right into the glass wall, but we can't see that that's our boundary and that's sort of our growth edge. And we keep paying it like noticing we can start paying attention to the patterns. What are the patterns that keep sabotaging our growth and the path that we're choosing? I find that like working with psychedelics teaches us, first of all, about perception and how we pay attention. And this is really kind of a lot to dive into, but they teach you how to pay more attention to what you're paying attention to in your life. If you keep paying attention to the same things that keep limiting you in those self-reinforcing, self-sabotaging behaviors, then you just start paying attention to the patterns. Like, why do I still keep dating like the same kind of archetype? Or why do I make it this far in my career and then self-sabotage in these ways? And what are the patterns that keep like poking their heads up in our lives and then paying attention to that and then looking at sort of the root causes of that. And psychedelics really help us do that in a lot of ways and help us essentially rewrite those narratives. Because I think at the core of it, we're the main actors on the stage of our lives. And it's really all a narrative. It's all the story that we tell ourselves. That's why you can go to a dinner party with a good friend. And let's say you're both sitting next to the same person in between you having the same conversation and you're driving home with your friend and you're saying, wow, that guy was a real jerk. And your other friend is saying, wow, that guy was so funny. Like what a charming. <laughs> yeah. And and why do we have those different experiences? Essentially, we see what we believe and we pay attention to those deeply rooted belief systems that were given to us as children. 
And it's actually a profound statement to say this, that we see what we believe. You can actually spend the rest of your life unpacking that and playing with it and starting to notice it. But if you want to see what the results of your limiting beliefs are and your empowering beliefs, just look at your life. It's literally reflecting back to you what you believe to be true and you pay attention to that. I know we're getting technical here, but stick with me for a second. So in every given moment, we're exposed to about 4 billion bits of data. And the brain is very good at streamlining what we pay attention to. And there are some core things we pay attention. We're biologically hardwired to pay attention to our safety and to, you know, things that might prevent our safety and stability. And we also pay attention to things that have high emotional arousal. That's part of link to safety. But we also primarily the third big bucket of what we pay attention to is our past experience. So it's easier for me to go to that dinner party. And let's say I have a belief that all men are jerks, okay? Which a lot of women do have that kind of belief. Then I'm going to look for that kind of data and fit that data into the box of what I already believe to be true because it's energy efficient and that's the way that our mind works. It's like the hammer looking for the nail, basically. Exactly, exactly. And so we're constantly, you know, those little games as children where you reach for the square and you put it in the square yeah. box yeah. and then it fits in. <laughs> we're doing that all the time with data. So like out of four billion bits of information, we all have mechanisms in the brain like the thalamus, the, the reduction valve. For people who follow, you know, psychedelic literature, Aldous Huxley wrote The Doors of Perception. He's talking about the thalamus opening up. And that's why in psychedelic journeys, we're like, whoa, there's all this information coming at us. But those are also safety mechanisms so that we can like be in waking consciousness, walk and talk, walk across the street. It's really interesting that like I'm literally constantly picking out the same 2000 bits of data to confirm what I already believe to be true. And so once we understand the sort of core underlying mechanisms for which perception works and consciousness works, which actually psychedelic research and science is really one of the best ways that we're actually learning about consciousness right now. And so when we learn the way that we perceive, then we start empowering ourselves to make change. So when we're coming back to this analogy of being in the glass room, I see like the same patterns. We keep running into those same invisible patterns, same patterns keep showing up. But it's like Jedi training in the sense where I can say, no, Pierre, instead of like walking right into the glass wall, look at it from this angle and maybe you'll see like a glint of light pop off and then you see the glass wall. And then once you know how to pay attention to it, you're like, oh, okay, I'm going to work with this now. I'm going to heal this aspect of myself. I'm going to rewrite this narrative, rewrite this belief in a way that actually allows me to make progress and walk in alignment with the vision of what I'm creating in my life. Wow, there's so much to unpack. I love it. It's so good because it is exactly what happens. We go through experiences and we look for similar experiences. It's like you travel. You go to another country, you're, oh, it's like in my town. It's like in this country. It's like in that. Every time you're trying to link it back to data you have from previous experiences. So as a child, you're obviously accumulating all those data, as I imagine. And that's when, after you create those links, you're basically creating your operating system. I find, at least that's what I see with my daughter. It's fascinating to watch. It's almost like a reflection of you as an adult because they pick up some things you do and you're like, 
oh, did I do that? And they're like, whoops. Right, right. So we learn by association. That's the way the mind works. It's more energy efficient to learn by fitting things into an existing framework. And if you were given a shitty framework as a child, then you're up against just more limitations in terms of what you're perceiving and the narrative that you tell yourself about what life is. And this is the difference between a really happy, fulfilled, inspired life versus a life that's the opposite of that, depressed or unfulfilled or constantly searching for meaning and purpose. Not that we don't go through those phases in our lives. We're human, but it really is a total mindset shift around how we engage with the narrative of our lives. So we're going to dig and give a little intro on what the psychedelics are. What does it mean? I'm going to ask you that question just before. Guys, if you're listening, obviously none of that is medical advice. Just check if you have a psychiatrist, check with them around the use. And also it's different legalities, different countries, different states. So just make sure you're within your own rules and boundaries. And last but not least, those are beautiful compounds that can be also very powerful. And it's just like drinking a bowl of wine and then driving. There are safe ways to do things and there is like, not so safe, which usually yields the results you might hear on TV or in the stories of bad things happening. With that said, I just want to, and Laura, feel free to put disclaimers anywhere because that's something I really appreciate with the content you're sharing. And what I looked at is you actually tell people, hey, this is not for everyone. Be careful, etc." So I just wanted to give a little brief disclaimer slash intro for, for, for peeps. So what are we talking about when we say psychedelics? consciousness. Uh Okay. So just lay of the land. Cultures across the world for millennia have been working with plant medicines. We often refer them to sacred plant medicines to move into another dimension, being able to perceive another dimension, also known as an altered state of consciousness. So we also naturally go into an altered state of consciousness every single night when we go to sleep. People are listening who have never worked with a psychedelic before and think about how different your dream state is versus waking consciousness. It's a great way to think about it. And so there were a lot of different names that were actually tossed around before psychedelic stuck. Psychedelic actually means mind manifesting. So it's actually beautiful that we opened with everything that we opened because what I was expressing in all of that opening and getting actually rather technical about perception is that your beliefs manifest your reality. And so in a way, psychedelics help to amplify the way that you perceive reality and give you a different perspective on the way that you're engaging with life. So we're talking about whether it's a plant medicine like ayahuasca that has DMT compounds in it, or we could look at LSD, which is also a very powerful psychedelic synthetic, although it did originally come from the ergot plant. And then we have mescaline and peyote. The way that we talk about various medicines is really important. There's not so much sensitivity in the way that I talk about LSD, but the way that I talk about peyote is it needs to be actually held in a very sort of specific way because there are a lot of cultures that work with that medicine and the way that we talk about it is actually important. And so we want to hold that with a lot of respect and a lot of care for those cultures that work with these medicines for generations upon generations in a very ceremonial way. And so these are compounds that 
affect the brain, mostly through the 5-HT2A receptor site in the brain that fundamentally change the way that we perceive reality. There is so much to unpack there, but it's a hallucinogenic compound. And we also could use the word entheogen. A lot of people like that name as well. And entheogen is a name for the way that we connect to God or spirit. So there's Many ways that we can look at this from a shamanic perspective or an indigenous perspective or a science perspective, especially like within a neuroscience perspective, what's actually happening in the brain. So essentially compounds that are hallucinogenic that allow us to change the way we perceive reality. Beautifully explained. It's great. Then I'll just add to that from my understanding is that I think it's Stanislas Graf who said that, and it was that psychedelics are to consciousness or like to the brain what the telescope is for space exploration in a way, meaning it's a great tool. And I feel for my photographer friends out there, it's almost like you're shooting always with a 50 millimeter, with the same lens all your life, same focal length. You see things the same way. And as much as you want to see wider or narrower, it's very difficult. But suddenly it's as if for a few hours you can put a very wide angle lens and suddenly you see a lot wider or you might see super detail into one infinite thing that you would have never noticed. So it just changes your perception for a certain amount of time. And then you put back your normal lens, but now you know that you can change lenses. And that is the thing that never goes away. I love this analogy. I'm going to use that if that's Go okay ahead. with you. Absolutely. If I have permission, I love that analogy. Good one. Yeah, I thought about when we're chatting, I was like, oh, because I've heard it put differently, but I'm like, everyone knows photography here. So I'm like, it's like you shoot always with the prime, same prime focal length, 50 millimeter. And yeah. now you can go at yeah, 14, yeah. you go one. back to 50. And now you know there is another lens. So a lot to unpack. We'll get into the creative side. How did you get into that space? What's your comic book story on that? Yeah, well, I would say as a child, I was very immersed in my dream realm. And it's funny because I've interviewed quite a lot of people on the Psychedelic Leadership Podcast, and I have noticed a core sort of thread and theme amongst many people who started working with psychedelics and altered states of consciousness from a younger age. And that was definitely the case for me. My dream realms were so vivid and I just hated school. I thought school was the most boring thing you could possibly do with your time. I did everything in my power to always get out of it. And I was also an athlete as a kid too, which I would love to actually share about in a moment, but I would be so excited to go home and go to bed and go into dream realm. And a lot of times in my experience, I would have these moments where I'd have to like ask my dad or my family, like, did that really happen? Or was that a dream? Like it was very like mixed into my my reality and so, so vivid. And I think that just sparked an interest for me around altered states in general. And then when I was really young, I had um, someone in my family that was a lot older than me and who was starting to experience psychedelic journeys that would express some of the things that he was going through. And so I, it's so funny because I need to be so careful around legalities and all the things, but I would hear stories about magical lands at about like 10 years old and be able to be like, wow. And there was just like seeds that were sort of planted in my consciousness. And then I was about 14 or 15 and I had my first high dose psilocybin experience. So I was quite young. And I like to say to people, you know, I kind of joke that like 
psychedelics and plant medicines like hand raised me and forged me into the woman that I am today. And so it really was such a parallel, like I grew up learning how to grow up and be who I am on this path through just many journeys over the years. And then also paralleling just my upbringing in the family that I had. I grew up with two entrepreneurial parents, very different landscape then as an entrepreneur than it is now. Like everyone and their mothers, brothers, fathers, sisters are entrepreneurs now. But growing up at that time, it was so different. And so my parents really taught me a lot about how to look for opportunity and how to perceive opportunity. And I pitched my first business plan when I was about eight years old. I was just a kid. We used to have family dinners together. And then by dessert, you pitched your idea to the rest of the family. And so that was a big part of my upbringing as well, which actually really links into what my narrative around creativity shaped into as I grew up, actually what it means to be a visionary creative, which is really a big part of the framework that I teach in my programs. So it was just a strong calling to sort of hurl myself over the deep end and see what happens. You mentioned travel earlier too. I also had a very strong propensity to go to very foreign countries. And it was sort of another way that I was like hurling myself over the deep end to be like, what's this experience going to be like? And I think it's just always been this like deep drive, this deep curiosity around what else we can experience in this life. That's so good. The travel part, I never thought about it that way. But you're right. It's exactly that too. It's you're putting yourself in a different perspective framework. Like you go to certain countries, you're like, wow, that's like a million years from operating the way I would ever think and do. And that opens up your mind also. I started traveling young and that always had a huge impact. It's the same. Yeah, that's fascinating. I love that. Well, and just to add one more layer there, I started traveling, like really intense traveling when I was about 16, backpacking. I actually also did quite a lot of entheogenic medicines in other very, very foreign countries. And not that I absolutely do not recommend that to anyone because there are very harsh drug laws in a lot of these countries. But it actually gave me this experience of being able to really witness how different of an experience that other cultures have especially as I spent many years of my life studying Buddhism for about the last almost 17 years. I've been really deeply immersed in Eastern philosophy and then having these experiences and then being able to be exposed to foundationally Buddhist countries where that's like a primary just way of perceiving. It had such a big impact on me in my life. I grew up in a very traditional way and with a traditional mindset. I'd never really questioned much until I was like five years into my job. And, and then I had my own mind shift just by reading books. And uh, for example, on drugs, it was very much like all drugs are evil. Everything's bad. Alcohol is not a drug. Of course not. It was really that narrative for me. It's like you almost you smoke a joint and tomorrow you're doing heroin under a bridge and you're homeless and people who smoke joints are lazy. And this is literally the world I grew up in. I have no shame of saying it. And this is a narrative I was fed and that I understood. Now, many, many, many examples. And another guest is going to come up of people that I know who smoked weed and, and like completely blew that out of the window because they're like amazing entrepreneurs. I'm like, oh, well, <laughs> look at that. How was your world around it? How was it perceived? 
And how did you navigate or dip your toe into it? Because I had to unlearn or like realize a lot what I didn't know actually was just like, yeah, an education actually on the whole topic. Yeah, I would say like it kind of happened in different phases, but because I started working with psychedelics, I even knew that there was a narrative around them being wrong or bad. And that's why I feel like this path and like even speaking with you and where I'm at in my journey was my dharma from the beginning of my life. And so there were sections of time where I was working with psychedelics less like during university, like window, and I was studying entrepreneurship and being a little bit more focused in like the commerce, that sort of matrix. And then as soon as I left my hometown and I packed a bag and I left and I actually never went back. And in those two years after university, I remember very distinct LSD trips that were way out there in the world, just on the edge of nowhere, where I was really grieving the process of the education that the masses are getting, where it was this defragging my brain and my body and feeling my body like carrying the education of the stock market and all of the financial structures and all of it and just sobbing and sobbing and having these journeys of just like real deep grief, like grieving for myself and for the collective of humanity. And that was really informative for me. But I've always been super stubborn. I've always been this kid that was like hardheaded and like wanted to beat to my own drum. It was like, oh, you guys are all going left. I want to go right. I never wanted to do the thing that I was supposed to do. And I feel incredibly grateful that I had two very supportive parents. My father, one of the best beliefs that he gave me that was sort of parallel with the medicine was that whatever I thought in my mind, I could make a reality and that I could create whatever I wanted to create. And there's so much other stuff that I've navigated with healing and my relationship with my father, but I would take all of the hardship just to keep that one belief that he gave me. And my mother used to always tell me, I trust your judgment. So I was raised by a mother who is still my best friend, who she's the closest person in my life. We joke now that she would say, I knew one day the rest of the world would catch up to you because this was 20 years ago and saying, hey, there's really something to this. There's really, really something to this experience that is fundamentally transformative and helpful and healing because I used to struggle with depression and addiction throughout my teenage years and it was helpful. Now there wasn't a framework, an educational framework that went with it, but I knew that it was helpful. And actually in high school, I started intuitively microdosing. So this was like 20 years ago. And I remember the first time someone, I heard the term microdose and I was like, oh, duh, that's like obvious. But that was the first time. And I was like, I had already been do, doing that practice to be more focused and engaged in school until I actually stopped going to class altogether about grade eight. And I started self-studying because I thought school was such a waste of time. And my parents supported me in that too. I actually only had to go to one hour of being with a tutor to replace the whole week of school. And so I had a lot of free time on my hands and also was more of like a risk taker got into all sorts of trouble. You mentioned you were into sport. Yeah, and that really shaped me. 
the level of dedication and determination. And I dove for many years and trained competitively and also played water polo. And those early sort of years of shaping my life to like self-discipline. And importantly, another big key to those years was my coaches teaching me how to use my mind and how to visualize the power of visualization for competing. And so there's, I have this really big aspect to the programs that I teach that's all about creative visionary bodhisattva, which is more the Eastern philosophy part. But the visionary piece, like that trinity of learning for me was through my father, through growing up as an athlete and through the plants teaching me that our minds are manifesting all the time. I have a million brain notes right now where I want to go back to the first one, which is the athlete and discipline part. So you mentioned diving, is that right? Like from the springboards, right? Where you like do the twist and it looks great. This is a perfect example of visualizing because you can't really do it in the moment. You have to know exactly what you're going to do before. How do you teach yourself self-discipline if you're not an athlete? What do you think about that? Because I feel like this might be yeah. the biggest struggle for anyone trying yeah. to achieve anything. Okay, let's back up a second. A lot of the reflections I get from the people closest to me are like, wow, you have just such a high degree of self-discipline. And in a way, I find that discipline, I think even actually like the narrative of the word discipline makes most people want to cringe. Like know, we have to actually change. And, and like being like, beaten whip. up by someone. Like, you know? <laughs> and so this is kind of why I wanted to back up, because I think in Western mind, we're very self-critical. Right. So I think we have to sort of preface the notion of discipline with kindness and self-love and compassion, that this isn't like the self-whip on the back and like you have the drill sergeant. Actually, when I'm disciplined in the things that I care about, I have more freedom in my life. There's liberation in discipline and change. So this is where a lot of like Eastern philosophy comes into my framework because my spiritual teacher, she talks about discipline from this perspective of loving kindness and that when we sit in meditation, for example, that takes discipline. It takes discipline to hold your seat and to stay with it because the mind just wants to be like, Boop, go do the next thing or go do that thing. Or, and so it requires discipline to grow and to hold space for change. And that kind of dedication is so empowering. And the way that I would say, you know, now that I'm thinking about it, like it's a muscle that we learn to flex. So it's really a uh, practice in essence. And I was actually right before this conversation, just talking to my friend on the phone. And I am just moving into a new apartment in Austin after being on the big island for 10 years. And so I'm setting up my space in this way. You know, before we started recording, we were talking about how much we love our stand-up desks. And our environment is such a big aspect to how we create and how we create structure. And so I've spent a lot of time thinking about like, when am I most my creative? Like, when do I get my best? ideas. And I've really designed, like really consciously designed my life to make the scaffolding of my life and the physical environment of my life to make discipline really easy. I like that. Yeah. Making discipline easy. I'll backtrack to the self-love and kindness part. I totally did not think about it, but you're completely right. If you think about it, let's say we are going to do something for 30 days. And most of us would say this is discipline to do it every day, right? The one thing that will take you out of it is usual distractions, because the reason you would commit to something is because 
you intrinsically believe that it's going to be good for you, you're going to feel great, you want to learn something, etc. And the one thing that will distract you is actually things that usually don't serve us. Otherwise, it's <laughs> just a different commitment. So I love the self-love and kindness because if you really love yourself to the core, you will go back to that discipline because this feels right. better. You know, you're more in flow into right. those activities than you are in the distraction. Yeah. Oh, shoot, I forgot to clean up. I forgot yeah. this. You know, I don't have time to meditate. Yeah. I have to do all those million things. Let me just add on to this. There's this framework that I teach. It's like, think about like a cross, a four-way cross, okay? So you build your life and your environment to support like an open creative channel is kind of how I think about it. And so on this, on the vertical axis for people who are listening just through audio, we have vision and then above and value below. So we align our vision. This is leadership development and we can call it creative leadership development. 101. And so we're looking at what is the vision of what we want to create in our lives? What do we care about? Like, why are we doing that thing? And why are we going for that thing? Who are we becoming? There is so much I could actually say about this, but plant medicines help us to cultivate a sense of inner vision. And this links into really the research and the science behind the power of visualization. And so when we connect, we give ourselves permission, first of all, to connect to a vision that is not yet manifest in our reality and to say, I can create that and I can go embark on the journey to become that person that is embodying the vision that I held however long ago. And I think just a caveat in this thinking is that it's not about the outcome of the vision. Like for me, I've written a couple of published books. I've created, I built a volcanic hot spring retreat center. I've created a lot in my life. The outcome of the manifestation of the vision is a byproduct of who you become along the way, how that creative process literally like shapes you into the human being that you're becoming, that no one can take that away from you. So we have this path of vision aligned with our values and taking time to ask ourselves, what do I value? What do I really care about in my life? What's really important to me? And I'm very clear on all of this because it's, I make this actually a practice. And I encourage a lot of the people that I work with to make this a practice. Actually, cultivating clarity is a habit of high performance. And so people, high performers are in the habit of seeking clarity more often than people who are not high performers. So we have the vision and values, and then we have the passion and the purpose. And that's like the fuel that gives us that stamina. It's like the recipe for grit. Angela Duckworth's grit model is like going far for a long time. Like it's not a short sprint and then you give up. We're talking like life work for decades and decades and having the stamina to keep doing that. And so it's really getting clear on what my purpose is here and then getting clear on the passion that fuels that. That's why I am incredibly dedicated. I have such a high degree of discipline because that sort of framework, that model is very clear in my mind and I revisit it often. That's great. It reminds me of a quote, I think it's from Alice in Wonderland, which is, how you get there is where you will get. I love that. <laughs> Which has a little right, twist right, right. in it, but it's exactly that. I love that you're making clarity of practice because even myself, I fall out of the wagon. I never thought of making that. I didn't even think about it as any kind of practice before. So that's fascinating. How would one cultivate practice? 
to practice clarity? Like, what clarity. does it look like writing down things or asking yourself certain questions? I personally, and again, major disclaimer, this is not for everyone. I'm just talking about my own personal practice, my path that is true to my heart. But I have a practice working with my plant teachers. The scaffolding of my life is built around integration. Okay. So I have this very strong support network that manifests itself in very many different ways through the community I have, through mentors, through very close friends who also have a similar practice and that we integrate together through the literal structure of my environment, through my lifestyle and through my knowledge and through what I'm learning and how I'm teaching and the way the output that I put out through my work in this world. So my whole life is really built around tapping into this open creative channel and cultivating clarity in another dimension that feels very alive for me and that's very informative and that allows me to remember and come back into my heart and what's really important to me and not because I need to do this, let me give you an example. So a lot of people have this core wound of not good enough, of unworthy. And it's this path then, the manifestation of that is proving. I need to do, I need to do, I need to get the credentials. So it's a life of chasing. It could take a long time to actually unpack that sort of core wound where if you have the kind of support and if you're not working with, I recommend working with a guide or someone to support you in this journey, and you could have one journey to replace, you know, 10 years of trying to figure it out on your own that just snaps clarity into place. And sometimes it's helpful to go into those journeys or even with a microdosing practice and ask that question, like the way that my narrative is, okay, you know how earlier you just said, wow, I never thought about the practice of cultivating clarity. Now I just gave you a new conceptual model that now is in your mind and now your reality, your physical reality and your actions that you take can now start to shift because you have this new conceptual model, right? So I'm what I'm doing here is actually like offering a conceptual model for a way of living that's possible that might not work for other people, but it works really well for me in terms of how I'm a creative entrepreneur. So I go into these journeys and I ask for clarity because my conceptual framework is that I'm in this constant co-creative dance with some life force that moves through all things and that I am a part of it. And I trust my plant teachers and my spirit allies. And I trust the wisdom that is beyond me that is like in collaboration with me, but there's a way that we can communicate with other aspects of ourselves with the help of these very profound teachers that cultures have been working with for thousands of years. So through that chord, and, and it's, I'll use the P word, the prayer word, but I know it doesn't resonate for a lot of people, but I use it in a different context now after working with medicines for so many years that have really taught me what it means to be living in this prayerful way in my life. And so it, we could also use the word intentional. So when I wake up in the morning before a microdosing practice or before I do a deeper dive solo journey, I'll really sit in meditation and like invite spirit to show me the way. Help me find clarity. I have songs that I wrote that came through spirit that are all about praying for clarity and cultivating that sense of clarity. So it's like a total sort of mindset shift in terms of 
not figuring it out. It's not analytical. And that's where plant medicines are so amazing because they get us out of our analytical minds where we can start feeling and we can start asking ourselves like, what do I care about? And I feel my heart and I feel my body come alive. And I feel to me, creativity is actually this very subtle frequency that I refer to as inspiration. And so I create my whole life around like tuning into that frequency and like moving with it and cultivating a relationship with that. And that's really important to me. And the more that I revolve my life around that, it births clarity from that place. And then, of course, we can say like simple things. That was a very like tangential answer, but I can say journaling and, you know, going for walks. Like I get when I'm working through my day, I go work in 90 minute cycles and then I'll take a break and go for a walk to help get clarity and streamline my focus. I think better when my body is moving. And I know that about myself. Even asking your subconscious mind, please show me clarity around this. And even having the awareness that you need clarity about an aspect of your life is actually a huge quantum leap of awareness. What you're saying is, it sounds like it's really about tapping into or intuition more versus the intellect. And, and the clarity comes from aligning with that intuition. For example, like you mentioned, going on the walk, moving when you're working, Why do we have to sit if intrinsically that if you're going to move, you, you think better? Why do you try to go back to a model that works for others, but not for exactly. yourself? I love that. Okay, so that definitely brings a lot of clarity. Let's tap into that microdosing practice. And, and just before, because that's something that came up with, with some of my entourage. People think if you take, uh, let's say, mushroom. Are you going to see unicorns suddenly and dragons and you're going to be running naked in the streets? That kind of like how a lot of people <laughs> think about it. I would love for you maybe uh -huh. to like clarify a little bit that aspect. And if you're still listening and you still have any kind of doubts or you're like, I don't understand. Don't worry. I've been there. I have plenty of doubts. I've analyzed that thing through several angles before I ever considered it. Most people listening to this, do you think that they would know who Tim Ferriss is? He is a huge psychedelic advocate. He had a quote that he said, all of my billionaire friends work with psychedelics. And I don't want to equate money like, oh, you should work with psychedelics so that you can be a better entrepreneur or have more money in your bank. Please don't take that out of context. That happens quite a bit where people are like, I do want to do this psychedelic journey, but I'm not ready to overhaul my life right now. And I respect that. And so we have to be also aware that changes might happen. We might decide, oh, shit, like I've been valuing something that was something that my parents told me to value. That's not actually true to who I am. But yet I built my entire fucking life around this value. And now I need to go through the painful process of reattuning to who I am and what I truly care about. So you could avoid that your whole life. Or you could go on the journey of what it means to be human and, you know, lean into the full spectrum of human emotions. And it's like the arc of the hero's journey when you go through those experiences. But like the most successful, like intelligent people I know consciously work with psychedelics. It's all about set and setting. Yes. Do you see huge parties happen where people are on LSD and getting naked? And sure, I've been a part of those parties, you know, like, of course. In, in those settings, when I was younger and less intentional about some of the ways that I was working, 
But I also believe that there's a very strong place for recreational, quote unquote, use, because some of my most profound experiences were at Burning Man or at a festival in the crowd of a whole group of people listening to like one of the best DJs in the world. Like, don't tell me that that's not a spiritually transcendent experience because like it absolutely was for me. So I just think that if people listen to this and you're holding judgment, part of the beauty of psychedelics is that they help you to loosen your grip over what you believe to be true and get more curious and get more open hearted and open minded and be able to have a conversation with someone else without closing your mind and saying you're wrong. And you know what? I would argue that's like one of the most fundamental ways that we can change humanity for the better right now is just cultivating the practice of a curiosity mindset. You don't need to work with psychedelics to do that, but they help and they also help open our hearts and allow us to embody greater degrees of empathy. And considering the fact that we are living in dire times right now, that we are seeing more division and polarization than ever before, I vote for whatever is going to help us become kinder more embodied, present human beings that can defer judgment when we're speaking to other people. I'll add to that something in a few ways. So, Laura, one of the reasons I, I actually even considered any of that space was because through all my research, I just realized that whether it's mystical experiences, religious experiences, meditation at, let's say, high level near-death experiences, someone who might be on a marathon and at the end of the thread, or an athlete at the highest performance or the most difficult moment, or someone on a very high dose of psychedelics. All the experiences that people were talking about were too close to each other and too similar for me as having a scientific background and engineer, being like, I can ignore that. I could not ignore it once I've seen the data. I was like, wait, all those things are the same. There must be something here. Okay, and then there's a lot of education to do around like, how does it work, etc. And that's why I highly recommend no one ever to do it unless it's your own personal choices in life. But again, you have to understand what it is, how it works, and in what settings and what benefits you can get, depending on what you do or what are the risks. Also, you mentioned working with a guide, if you're doing certain types of practice, or if you're do doing the microdosing part, maybe on, or you can do it on your own. We can dig into that in a second, but really understanding that whatever happens, it's almost like you're in a nightmare. To me, like psychedelics can literally work like a nightmare where if you've had those, I have crazy dreams all the time, ever since I'm a kid. There's always that dream where you're running away from something and that thing just keeps pursuing and you're trying to move and you don't move or like you're falling forever, etc. Like those kind of dreams. And those compounds or even through, I don't know, dance, etc. can put you in those states where important material might come up and that's going to scare you. Or nature is going to be like, oh, I want to move away from it. But what it actually shows is more from my understanding is more like this needs your attention. Please look at it. Don't try to run away from it. A nightmare, the best way to stop it is turn around and look what's behind you, what's chasing you. And you realize it's a teddy bear or you realize it's a monster and you slay it and you're done. Your nightmare is over and you go pee and go back to bed. That trust and surrendering, understanding that aspect of there is something important, a message that's coming across that my subconscious wants to 
need to explore or work on is key. So let's dive into maybe the microdosing for creativity practice and be more technical around that because there's like a million directions we can go. Oh my gosh. And even just this is such a huge conversation. And I'll send you the link to include for people to sign up to the free eight-day microdosing course because there's all the basic questions. Like if you're curious about microdosing and you want to cultivate an intentional practice, then I recommend starting there. It covers a lot of the basics, which we won't cover here. And I recommend for people listening, if you've never microdosed before and you want to cultivate a practice, please defer practice until you actually go through the eight-day course because there's really good foundational stuff in there just for your own safety. So where do we want to start with microdosing? It's such a big conversation. Do we want to dive in somewhere specifically? I think a good aspect would just be uh, explaining to people what it is, how it, we don't know exactly how it works, but how it may work, or at least from all the accounts that you have with people, like how it may help people. And also just in what cases it's not a good idea. And before you even consider it, anyone listening, make sure you tried meditating for at least 10 days straight so that you understand a little bit how your mind fluctuates. I just think self-awareness and like meditation is such an easy low-hanging fruit that without dipping your toes in like stuff that can bring up a lot of more material than you can chew sometimes. Yeah. And I would say that meditation to me doesn't seem like a very low-hanging fruit to stick with it. So it's an amazing practice. And, and it is the foundation. And I really encourage people as a foundation for any kind of altered state of consciousness work, cultivate a meditation practice as like the foundation. I absolutely agree with you there. So with microdosing, really the definition of microdosing is taking a very small amount. Usually it's a tenth of a dose, although we can't really say that because everyone's full dose is very, very different. There's a very wide range. And so we're technically talking about an amount of a hallucinogen that we're consuming like psilocybin or LSD that's in small amounts that's technically sub-perceptual. So this is kind of where the nuance comes in because it's interesting and it's a little bit of like a, a nuance here that we notice effects, but it's often sub-perceptual. You're not tripping and seeing everything. It's almost like things are just a little bit more like enhanced in that way. And it really depends on who you are, what you're doing, what substance you're working with, how much you're taking. I mean, there's so many factors. And that's why I do a lot of like consults and microdosing mentorship for people so that it's actually like held in a way that optimizes change. And I think that even before we talk about microdosing, it might even just be worth to state that like most people come to microdosing and to psychedelics because they desire some kind of change in their lives. But we know that actually change is hard. It's difficult. Otherwise, we'd just be like the all doing all the things that we just snap to and we're doing that thing and we're the weight we want to be. And it's that discipline piece and the change piece and the practice piece. And so psychedelics have some interesting qualities to them because what they have is a generalizing plasticity effect. Okay. So Dr. Robin Cart Harris, I highly recommend diving into his research with the entropic brain and we're looking at pivotal mental states. But as a generalized statement, we can say that when we work with psychedelics, we have these windows of heightened malleability. We're more shapeable. 
for those who have, are really interested in this, reading Michael Pollan's book, How to Change Your Mind is a great place to start, where he talks a lot about the research. And so it's almost like when we talk about habits, which our perceptions and our beliefs are also deeply ingrained habits, it's like being on a, a sled on snow going down the hill where it's easier to go down that same sort of path. It's easier to just go down the path that's already been paved. And that's neurological connections in our mind. But when we work with psychedelics, it's almost like there's a fresh blanket of snow. So you can choose a new path a little bit more easily. And so when we start looking at the cultivation, so the way that I work with microdosing and the programs that I run and the people I work with, I'm not encouraging people to just microdose and then get in the car and go to work. I'm inviting people to cultivate a morning practice, a daily practice that helps set a foundation that's unique to them, that then is sort of a launch pad for really living our best lives. And we can say that creativity is humanity at its best, right? Creativity is a way that we're like full expression of who we are. So I really have created a model and I call it like the 8M microdosing morning flow where there's different aspects of the morning practice, whether it's meditation or movement. We also have breathwork practices and music. And so over the years sort of cultivated this amazing recipe that works really good. And again, it's within the environment that I'm in that I like the scaffolding that I've created for my creativity to flourish. And I create daily morning practices that I know will set me up for an amazing rest of my day. And, and again, the other piece here is that it's an invitation, like the microdosing, like just how I was saying, the arriving at the vision of what you're creating in your life. It's not about the end result. It's actually about who you become along the way. We can say the same thing with microdosing. The microdose isn't the thing. The, the real thing is the way that we're showing up for our lives. It's the relationship between us and our plant teachers or the substances that we're cultivating a very clear relationship with. That's the power, actually. And the power is that in that relationship, there's an invitation for us to show up at our altars, if you have an altar or not, but to show up and actually embody the ceremony of life. And to embody presence and ritual in a way that catalyzes living in a fulfilled, meaningful way. Because when you break it down, everyone is going for that. Everyone is going for happy, joy-filled, inspired, meaningful life. And so it's really a recipe to codify the struggle and leaving behind the limitations and actually creating a practice because whatever we want to accomplish requires practice to show up and repeat over again. And essentially we're practicing open heart and open mind and we're practicing cultivation of presence. There's a lot of things we can say that we're practicing, but essentially it's this foundation that then becomes my launch pad for me to really show up in what I'm doing and who I'm communicating with in the interviews that I'm leading or offering, like in this scenario, or the many, many meetings I have throughout the day or the chunks of content that I'm creating. And it allows me to show up as my best self and to create from my heart with integrity and in right relationship with my life and with whatever you want to call it, universe, spirit, God, it doesn't matter. That life force that is through all of us. And so 
microdosing is so much bigger to me than just like focusing in on like the psilocybin is actually just like point half of a percent of what microdosing actually is to me. That's great, especially because what you're mentioning from what I understand is you're setting the foundation and then maybe the compound might just help set the foundation, maybe glue it a little bit better or hold through time in a way, like you mentioned with a fresh powder of snow, you can set a new track on that specific day or in that you repeat over time. And this, I think, is key, especially if you're tapping into creativity. For me, I cannot tap into my creativity or I can't let it flow if I have a million things I'm thinking about, if I don't feel centered personally, or if I don't feel like I'm in alignment or with what I'm, I want to do now, you know. It's like you mentioned earlier, you want to move through with intention when you're doing things. So even if it's just going to shoot out, or like on a photo shoot or whatever, if my mind is somewhere else because I didn't take the time to settle and be like, okay, this is what's happening now, I can't get there. So I love that it's creating a structure. I think that's why it's, it can be so powerful for a lot of people. It's not just about a compound. It's about that practice you create. It's not like, <laughs> I'm sure a lot of people are like, oh, is it a magic pill? No, it's everything but a magic pill. It's literally something you need to build around from what I understand what you're saying. Yeah. And really to like link it in even deeper with the creativity piece. I mentioned the word inspiration. And so I invite actually people who are listening to this to think about the last time that they were inspired. Take a moment to like really think about what were you doing? Where were you? What time of day was it? And how did it feel in your body? And then what was a result of that inspiration? How did that come through you into the world, into what you were doing? There's something about this notion, and I, I invite people to pay more attention to those moments in their lives where inspiration is flowing through us, because I see inspiration as being this, this like direct channel to a lot of energy. <laughs> so we have like all of a sudden... There's this like life force that all of a sudden we're carried down the river. We're not struggling upstream. And this is so important. You want to like turbocharge your reality, focus on cultivation, the cultivation of inspiration in your life, because there's so many things we have to do as creatives and entrepreneurs that are logistical and blah, 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 and doing all the things. But when you tap into that channel, that is such a distinct frequency. We know it when we feel it. It's so distinct. That carries us and it's 10x. It's better than anything we could have come up with our own minds. It's flow, right? It's we know that experience and it doesn't happen that often, but we can actually learn to pay more attention to it. So just to tie this back in all the way to the beginning of the conversation, when I was talking about we're exposed to so much data and information, it's data around us, but also interoceptive data, data within ourselves. You know, we can tune into the beating of our heart or how our gut is feeling. And so if you keep looking at for the same information, you're going to keep creating the same thing over and over again. But now if I say, wake up in the morning and look for inspiration, then your mind, I'm actually activating a part of your brain called the reticular activating system. And now your mind is starting to look for it. And if I say, pay attention to the feeling of it, 
And we start actually building our lives around the supporting, the opening of a creative channel that actually produces what I call golden nuggets. And so there are ways that I know how to cultivate that. And there's ways that I practice, like dancing is part of my morning microdosing flow. When I have speakers set up, it's a part of, again, the environment of the creative environment. I'm always looking for new music that just lights me up. I'm working with journaling practices, with breath work, with meditation. But when I'm in my channel of my dancing with to music that I love, and I'm really just like ecstatic, ecstasis, then I'm able to like raise my energy to the point where I'm like, oh, I can now hook into inspiration. It's like climbing a ladder. If you're experiencing depression, which no judgment, like this, these are fucking hard times for a lot of people. And I also have struggled with depression in my life. And so I know that place very, very intimately. It's a really hard jump to go from depression to inspired, creative, open channel. So we do the practices to kind of move up the ladder. Oh, I can reach up one more. Okay, I'm going to encourage myself to think in this way. And I'm going to move my body in this way. I'm going to go for a walk. That makes me feel better. Then the ideas are flowing. So it's a way that we cultivate our lives to literally open that creative channel. I love that the dance part just sparked something. And I was like, if you want to test your own beliefs of judgment that were installed in you, just try dancing in a street or even without even going there. Try dancing alone in your home with loud music and even stupid music. You will hear your mind go like, this is stupid. You shouldn't do this. Your moves are whatever, you know, that whole narration that, you didn't have as a kid. I have a two-year-old. Nothing exists in the mind. It's a blank state. Like the moves just come. There's no judgment. It's just free expression. It's beautiful. But when we go older, I'm like, this is a great exercise. If you think you don't have filters, try this. Or go to an ecstatic dance in your community. And actually, this is such a like play. The research shows that the more we play actually is so good for our creativity and for our creative output and creative expression. And when you think about like, okay, one of my favorite definitions of creativity was by Arthur Kostler that said, creativity is the defeat of habit by originality. I'll say it again. Creativity is the defeat of habit by originality. And actually, it's so interesting when you look at all the research right now, so much research is coming out about how psychedelics can help treat depression, PTSD, anxiety, and addiction. And that's really where it's catching in the mainstream. Like psychedelics are being so destigmatized now because now the proof is in the pudding. There's so much research to show that it actually is very, very effective. But one thing that we're not talking about yet as much, although I think it's going to go in that direction, is exploring psychedelics for creativity. The research is, is going to go in that direction too. But when you look at this definition of creativity, that it's the defeat of habit by originality, you can say the same thing of the healing of depression or addiction. You're choosing a new path. So we get caught in these cycles over and over and over again, whether it's like ruminative thinking, beliefs that we just don't even, we're not even aware that we keep, you know, circling around and to sort of like step out of that hamster wheel and say, oh, here's a new thought or here's a new way of looking at it or here's a new belief. It's actually how we move out of like mental illness, like depression, cognitive flexibility. And it's also the same thing that helps us to think more creatively. 
And so one of the ways to catalyze getting out of the hamster wheel is to play and to look at children and the way that they play because it's like free from inhibition. And dancing is such a great way to just like everyone, we can all collectively start just taking ourselves a little less seriously. And I think that's actually the beauty of medicine and psychedelics and plant medicines is just how they help us laugh at the irony of life. We're just here for a moment. Enjoy it. Don't take it so seriously. It's not about the end destination. The end destination is your own death. So let's keep that in mind and be able to live in a way that's really true to who we are and to who we are on this path. There's a good reminder also that I think our civilization is about only 6,000 years old. If we look at our planet, it was a few billions. <laughs> just to put it in perspective, like when we think we're so important, it's like, are we really? Why can't we play more and take it less seriously in a way? I always wonder, because I don't know, I don't think I found a book on that yet. Do you know anything about how it's being used? Do people actually take some compounds and then start creating like, let's say, painting or like drawing or photography or, or whatever? Or is it more like they will have a journey and then create later something that might have come All through? All of the above. Okay. All of the ways. <laughs> okay. Yeah. There's infinite ways to be creative and there's infinite ways that people have their creative process. So one model to even think about is the four P's model of creativity. I don't know if you're familiar with this, Mel Rhodes model. So when we say creativity, it's such a huge word and it's kind of like, what are we actually talking about? So he talks about the creative person, like characteristics of the creative person and mindset the creative process, like the process that we go through, whether it's over a course of minutes, hours, or decades, the creative outcome, the product of what we're like manifesting in form. And then we have the creative place, the environment, which I've been referring to quite a lot in this conversation, which there's so much research that shows how we can set up our spaces to help be conducive to creativity. Now, when I talk to a lot of different people, about psychedelic, like people that I know work with psychedelics and that are also artists. I know some people who are like, I never mix them while I don't do psychedelics and paint. And then I know other people who are like that microdose. Look at Alex Gray. He is one of the most like prolific visionary artists of our time. And he talks a lot about psychedelics and creativity. So there's not one way. And there's also not even one definition of creativity. There are as many forms and definitions of creativity as there are people alive on this planet. So I think it's really helpful to get into that playful mentality and a little bit of that sort of experimental mentality of like looking at, oh, okay, that works for that person. I'm going to try it in a safe way. Remember, keeping safety like highest priority and then adjust accordingly and find what works for me personally. And I think that there's this like constant externalization going on. We're so pulled outward all the time and psychedelics and plant medicines give us that invitation. They're like reaching out a hand and saying, actually come within and find what's true for you. And what does creative expression or output look like for you? And I think that's just a really good mentality for all of us to have. Yeah, be in conversation with other artists that are also working with microdosing or psychedelics and, and remember that there's not one way. Like play with, my perspective is that life is one big experiment. We're all just experimenting. This is one big collective experiment, individual experiment. So we're just learning. It's, it's emergent space. 
Yeah, it, it definitely is a big experiment. And we have the Matrix coming out soon, or if not already, <laughs> the new version, which the old one, once you get into meditation or even the, the spaces of psychedelics, you're like, oh, I understand why they created that movie. This is literally the first thought that came to my mind. I'm like, I understand why they made that movie now. Like, it makes so much more sense. How we Funny. perceive things is not necessarily how, how it is, and we don't even know how it could be. So big question now. What would you recommend? And again, this is not medical or legal advice to anyone. Just make sure you're doing things right and check with your doctors. If you have doctors or with your, I don't know, laws in your own countries, what would you recommend in the way or what would you suggest they look into either before or as a first toe in the water? Before, like if people are listening to this, have never worked with psychedelics. Like we said earlier, I think having a solid meditation practice is a really good first place to start. Really depends the spectrum of what people are working with. If you are listening to this and you're really struggling with depression or addiction, that really does require extra support. If you're listening to this and you're like, oh, I'm generally well adjusted, things are pretty good in my life, I'm kind of curious what more there is. I would look at potentially starting with a microdosing practice or working with a guide or someone who can support the container and help prepare you for that experience. I support a lot of people in the preparation and the integration. Feel free to reach out to me for if that's something that's resonant for you. Or if you are looking at a retreat or something like that, I also have a really great document on my website that's 41 questions for vetting your shaman. I also have really great guides for how to have a safe psychedelic journey at home. If you so choose, that's your choice. You're making that empowered choice and also please be safe. And so I created a guide around safety. There's a lot of information out there around harm reduction and how to have a safe journey. And if you are working with trauma or with really overcoming some big things in your life, Get support, even without psychedelics, when you go through like really difficult, challenging experiences. We're supportive creatures by nature. So reach out. Don't do it alone. We're not meant to do any of this alone. Yeah, that's for sure. The um, yeah, support is so, so underrated. Uh, a lot of people see it in a weird way. But I think th this narrative has changed, especially with COVID, where people actually understood the benefits of it. And yeah, you mentioned the preparation and integration extremely important from everything that I've understood in that space. It's as important as one's experience because a good example can be in life, you might have an experience, but what is going to impact you emotionally and physically is how you take that experience, right? Can be a traumatic event for some people, but not for others because of how they will look and integrate it. Let's say something happened to you and no one ever believes you. That's going to be traumatic in some way. People are going to think you're crazy, but you know it has happened, you know, <laughs> deep down. But now if everyone believes you, you're going to think it's normal and you can share it openly. So again, your preparation, what you're trying to achieve, work on, and then how you integrate whatever came up or just your experience mm -hmm. talking about it with someone who can hold the space for you is just equally as important. I'll just say that. Mm -hmm. Do not think this is lighthearted or like an easy or like a recreational thing because it would be the same thing as saying, I'm going to drink a bottle of vodka and go on the highway. You know already just because the culture is so attuned to alcohol, how it might end. And so yeah. it's just as powerful 
as alcohol in a way at high dose. So yeah, yeah. Even if you do want to have a solo journey. So I kind of like to hold the sort of full spectrum of this awareness. Like one side is that people have been journeying with these medicines safely for thousands of years. Absolutely. Okay. So I think that we also like to sort of overemphasize the fear of it all. Like women have been giving birth in the forest for yeah. Hundreds of thousands of years. Okay. So like when we think about like, oh my God, giving birth outside of a hospital. That being said, like the medical model is really helpful for saving babies in emergencies or when you break a leg. And so there are models like psychedelic assisted psychotherapy, very good model for people working with mental illness like depression or PTSD or anxiety or end of life anxiety. That's another big area that people are seeking out these medicines. And so there's a wide spectrum. I think it's possible to have a safe psychedelic journey at home if you choose. But then basic things that you can put into place at the very least is you have a buddy system. So like when I journey, I have a where I still after 23 years of journeying, I still have I check in. I have a buddy that if I'm alone, then I make sure that they check in on me. Or if you're new to working with psychedelics and you want just a trip sitter, then not a therapist or a guide or a facilitator, but just someone to sit just in case anything's happened. There are also guides for that. So you can, and I link to that on my website as well. So it's like, if someone else that you can just give them the guide and to tell them to read this information on just how to hold space in case anything happens. The chances of emergency happening is actually really low. There's not a lethal threshold dose for psilocybin is super, super high. You can't physically consume the amount of mushrooms you would need to have to overdose. I trust the medicine. It's kind of like that saying, trust Allah, tie up your camel. It's kind of like that. Trust the medicine, trust the compounds and create safety, you know, and do what you can. Like, don't be stupid about it. Okay. There is a million avenues we could go in the future. We're going to keep it there. I love that the fact that you're changed that narrative around your own creativity and that you were able to, in a way, overcome or like just change the narrative completely. And I feel like so many of us can benefit from that. So many think we're not creative in those areas. We can't do this. We cannot blah, 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 fill the blank. I think that those tools can be super helpful. So I'm very grateful for you sharing that with us. You have a ton of information on your website, especially for harm reduction. Those questions you mentioned for if someone is going to see a guide or shaman or however that person wants to be called. Those questions, I, I look through them. Very, very important questions because I think it's Tim Ferriss who said you want to find a person who stays with you when you're in that space with the same amount of scrutiny that you would look if someone was doing brain surgery on you. So yeah, just think about it that space. Mm -hmm. You can be very malleable, which is great for adding new practices for yourself, but you don't want someone to take advantage of that either. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Laura, is there any place you want to send people to in order to learn more or explore your own universe or something you would recommend people? Yeah. So I'll give you the link to my websites and all the links for the show notes, yeah. because I'm, right now I'm doing a pretty big overhaul into from livefreelauraD.com to lauradon.co. Okay. So my new home base by January 1st, 2022 is going to be lauradon.co. And you can find all the projects I'm working on, the retreats, my programs. I'm doing a really big course with the Shift Network. 
starting in February. That's all about plant medicine integration for change makers. I run microdosing programs. I have my free eight day microdosing course on my website. And please feel free to check out my podcast, the Psychedelic Leadership Podcast. Yes, great podcast. If you want to hear more stories and a little more in depth on some areas, definitely a, a good resource. Thank you so much, Laura. Everyone, go check out Laura. Everything is in the show notes below or on pietilambert.com forward slash Laura D. And we will see you, Laura, maybe in a new episode. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It was such a joy. Thank you so much, Laura. Thanks. Before you go, quick question. Would you like to receive twice a month for free my top five email? It's an email that I craft with love and passion in which I share what inspired me recently, books and film that had an impact on me, but also things I've been thinking about, gear, tips and photos that I absolutely love. If that resonates with you, if you want to peek into that universe, please join thousands of other readers. Sign up for free at ptl.fm forward slash top five. That's ptl.fm forward slash top five. Thank you so much and have a beautiful day. Remember, try something different, try something new.